0: Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the institute. In Simon Cast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. Today, we're delighted to be joined by really one of the rising stars of the delegation, Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, who represents the 8th Congressional District, uh, which are the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Congressman has an amazingly interesting background. He he was born in New Delhi, India, India, uh, moved with his family to Buffalo first and then Peoria. His dad became a professor at Bradley. University. Uh, he did, He was a he was a great student there. Was a valedictorian of Peoria Richwoods, which is one of the great high schools in Peoria. Went to Princeton, studied mechanical engineering. Went to Harvard Law had an interesting background in business also worked in government in various capacities Illinois housing development board uh, stints at the Illinois Attorney General's office and the treasurer's office. Um, he was elected to the House in 2016 is involved in a lot of issues, including education job training consumer safety foreign policy and the COVID crisis trying to respond to that. Um, I might just say, as a personal matter, when I arrived at the Institute four years ago, I sat at my desk and there was one letter waiting for me, and it was from the congressman who ha- had heard <laughs> about you know, me coming here, was aware of my background in Peoria, wrote a very kind note about the Institute, um, and ended by saying, as a proud Peorian, I wish you the best of luck in your new endeavor and look forward to connecting with you soon. So unfortunately, COVID has prevented us from connecting in person, uh, but we look forward to meeting uh, in person and, and today virtually with a congressman. So he's joining us from his office in Washington. So good morning, Congressman. Hey, good morning, John. Well, tell us about growing up in, uh, you know, I know you are just a couple months old when you left India, then you, your family moved to Buffalo where your dad was going to graduate school and then to Peoria. Tell us a little bit about the Buffalo and Peoria years.
1: Well, um, I, I moved to Peor, I'm sorry to Buffalo, New York when I was three months old. My father was studying engineering and things were going really well until suddenly they did not in the recession of 1973. But thanks to the generosity of the American people, we were allowed to move into public housing and food stamps for a time. And those sustained us. And again, thanks to the generosity of the American people, we were allowed to stay until my father completed his studies and then got a great job uh, in, of all places, Peoria, Illinois. And so they loaded up the U-Haul truck and started driving and driving until they reached Peoria. Um, And uh, that's really where the golden period of our lives began, because that's where we, we really entered the middle class. And pretty much every night at the dinner table, my father would say, you know, think of the greatness of this country to my brother and me and whatever the two of you do, just make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And so um, really those years in Peoria were formative, um, were uh, incredibly enriching for me uh, from an educational standpoint, but just from the standpoint of, um, you know, uh, collecting lifelong friends and having friends. Uh, who, uh, you know, my chief of staff uh, was from was my classmate from the third grade uh, in, in Peoria, and he just retired from my office last year. But um, as you can tell, I, I still maintain deep roots in
0: Peoria. Great, well, you uh, you know you went on to study engineering at Princeton and then then law at Harvard, and your inter- your early political forays are quite interesting because I learned that you uh, were uh, involved in a the campaign of a certain certain state senator <laughs> in two thousand trying to win a house seat that didn't go so well. Tell us about that <laughs> uh, experience.
1: Well, um, yes, a certain uh, gentleman named Barack Obama. I met him in the summer of nineteen ninety nine. Uh, a mutual friend said, hey, you, you both are from the same law school, you should meet. And so anyway, uh, he made the mistake of inviting me to lunch. Uh, and uh, and then later on, I volunteered on that campaign. Uh, and I had a very minor role in that loss. <laughs> uh, and then uh, he, uh, in 2002, he said to me, I have one race left in me. And I said, what is it? And he said, I want to run for the US Senate. And so um, uh, that became a storied campaign in in the annals of American political history. And, um, you know, that's actually the key. Um, One of the keys to his victory was the the advertisement that um, Sheila Simon cut for him uh, after her father, your former boss, Paul Simon, died. And uh, Paul Simon, was not around to actually endorse him in person, uh, and so, you know, that that uh, spot, that advertisement was was really special, and David Axelrod did an excellent job of producing it. But that really helped to propel
0: him uh, going forward. Right. Well, you were elected to the House in 2016. um, And um, let's talk about some of the things you're working on, because they're really, really important. Uh, You're on the Intelligence Committee. And for anyone who is watching c SPAN, or really any of the networks, uh, the Intelligence Committee had a remarkable hearing with the the leaders of the American intelligence community to just assess the broad global landscape. And of course, a lot of questions were, were focused on, on um, Ukraine. But I want to go back just a little bit because I saw that just three, three years ago in 2019, you introduced a package or a bill called the Kremlin Act, which called on the intelligence community to effectively assess what Vladimir Putin was up to, what his intentions might be vis-a-vis NATO, Eastern Europe. Tell us about the Kremlin Act and and what I know is kind of response to the... uh, Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. But, but talk about that, that, that legislative effort.
1: Well, that was basically an effort to um, assess uh, the threat from Russia at that time, which was five or six years ago. And we knew that um, they had designs on America's elections based on their interference in 2016 and just trying to understand what were their uh, military designs with regard to Europe. And little did we know um, how Vladimir Putin was planning his uh, you know, future military invasions even back then. Ukraine was in his sights for a long time. And uh, I think that it, it was kind of a, a poorly held secret uh, about his desire to reunite Ukraine with Russia. But for that matter, um, his wish to, uh, you know, basically establish a sphere of influence again uh, over the Baltic republics, Poland, and other countries that were formerly in the Soviet Union. So that was the 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 desire of my uh, or my desire in, in kind of authoring that legislation to get at these issues. And um, obviously now we're we're in a place where uh, unfortunately we have to deal with the very real uh, invasion
0: that's happened in Ukraine. Well, I mean, as as it works out, excuse me, you have five minutes to ask questions. And you are pretty amazing. Let me just briefly touch on the questions you asked. You asked about President Putin's mental stability, which we're all asking about, um, the degree to which he has popular support in Russia, um, how the U.S. might support a Ukrainian insurgency if it comes to that, the food and water supply in Kiev, What leaders in Taiwan might draw from the Ukrainian resistance, how China might be looking at Taiwan and how the oil embargo, the US oil embargo of Russia might affect the Russian economy. So you sort of got (laughs) to the essence of, of things. Tell us a little bit about how you designed those questions and what your sort of fundamental takeaway was from the responses you got.
1: Well, John, it, it's kind of startling that I asked that many questions in five minutes. I don't even remember. I didn't even remember all the questions I asked until you mentioned it. Um, basically, um, what I try to do is very simple, which is I reduce the amount of time that I make a speech. I don't like to make speeches during a five minute question and answer. I really try to elicit new information from the witnesses that's not already in the public domain. I don't want to just repeat what's already out there. And these questions were top of mind for me as I was listening to the witnesses during the hearing. And I strongly recommend your audience to actually watch the two hour hearing. Um, I I honestly, I, 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 I've been through many, many hearings, but I did not notice the time pass, John. They were so, um, uh, uh, I guess they were their, their testimony was so fascinating and uh, uh, it was fresh. Um, we talked about CIA Director Burns, probably one of the all-time great public servants in American history. Listening to him speak real time about the challenges of Ukraine is almost like listening to a master class about um, how do you deal with uh,
0: foreign threats and in this case, Vladimir Putin. Um, So what, where does this go? I mean, the the question that the hearing wrestled with is, how does this end? Um, It seems like Putin has bitten off more than he can chew, but -hmm. his history is to double down and to just dig deeper. And I know that the the, the, sort of the kind of fundamental question in the hearing was, how does this, what is the end game? What did you draw from that?
1: What I drew is that, um, you know, Putin is not going to be necessarily discouraged by uh, temporarily uh, being set back by the the Ukrainian resistance. Um, I think he's going to go all the way, but he's going to suffer great losses. I think there are at least two scenarios that are viable in this situation. One is a potential stalemate, a military stalemate, especially around the cities in Ukraine, where uh, the Ukrainian fight... Uh, Army and resistance is so strong and stiff and courageous, led by their courageous leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, So that's one scenario. And we have to do everything we can to help uh, supply the armaments, the food, the water, the other items necessary for them to get to that scenario. The second scenario is for uh, Moscow at great cost to potentially overrun the country However, they'll be met with a ferocious resistance and an insurgency. And that's where my legislation comes in. I introduced it with Mike Turner, the ranking Republican on the Intelligence Committee to basically assess right now what we need to do to supply the Ukrainian people with what they need to mount a successful insurgency. So those are the two scenarios that I foresee potentially.
0: Well, another matter that you're very active in, uh, you sit on a, a, a special committee that looks at the has been looking at the covid crisis. Um, and it's uh, modeled roughly on the the, uh, the the committee that President Truman, when he was a senator, oversaw during World War II. You know, with covid, I, I guess there's so many big questions, but I guess the three big ones are, you know, where are we now? What have we learned and will we do better the next time? <laughs>
1: Uh, wow, those are great questions. Uh, where are we now? I think that we're, we're in a lull. Um, you know, the Omicron surge has uh, kind of receded, and cases have dramatically fallen throughout the country. Of course, in Illinois, and and we are all enjoying the respite from mask wearing and so forth, which is a good thing. Um, I think where we're going from here is it really depends on our global vaccination campaign, and of course. Uh, the rise in vaccination rates here in America. I don't know how much more we're going to get people vaccinated here in America at this point. But I, what I do know is that 3.5 billion people around the world remain unvaccinated. And for instance, the entire continent of Africa of 1.2 billion people only has 16% of its uh, population having received the having received one shot. Uh, or sorry, yes, at least one shot. So 84% not having received even one. So we have to basically spearhead the campaign to vaccinate the world. If we do that, if we do that, John, then we have a chance of ending this pandemic or at least making it an endemic. If we don't, then uh, we're gonna see more variants. And I don't know the lethality or the contagiousness of those variants uh, but they could be more severe. And so I'm leading the charge on this. Today, we're actually waiting for the language from the omnibus, which is a fancy way of saying the new appropriations and budget budget for the rest of the year. I'm very hopeful that I was able to secure um, several billion dollars for this effort, but we need to do more. Um, what have we learned? Um, I think at, at the end of the day, what we've learned is that uh, this is a deadly, deadly disease. Um, we've also learned that we don't know all the answers to the questions about the long-term effects of COVID. A lot of people have suffered COVID and got over the initial round, but now they're still feeling the after effects of it. We've also learned that when we come together in a huge public-private partnership, we can do amazing, uh, extraordinary things such as developing a vaccine in nine months for COVID. So those are a couple of things that
0: I've taken away. I read an article yesterday in the Atlantic, and it, and it was called, how did, how did this many deaths become normal? And it's it, it noted that, you know, we're closing in on the almost unimaginable a million American deaths. And, and this author points out that, you know, 3,000 people died at 9-11, and it fundamentally transformed American society and foreign policy for a generation. But COVID, with a million deaths, has not had that same kind of fact, And this the author was positing is just, you know, an infectious disease is just harder to, to understand, to kind of attribute deaths to. I mean, as you try to pull back and see what the kind of societal consequences of COVID is, I mean, what, what are you thinking now? Um, I think that unfortunately,
1: COVID became part of the culture wars, and it became overly politicized. Um, there's still a chance for us to remove it from the culture wars. And I, I'm very hopeful that um, now that we have a situation where we've learned a couple of things, you keep the schools open, you keep the economy open at all costs. Um, we can start to figure out, you know, how do we protect ourselves going forward? That's why I keep talking about that global vaccination campaign. That's an issue that actually Democrats and Republicans support when you look at the polling on it. And um, if we can do this right, um, maybe we can take us out of this pandemic and then give us a little perspective on what happened. And with some perspective and distance, hopefully we can remove it from the very charged conversations that we're having right now and the politics of these elections that uh, happen every couple of years.
0: I know you're going to have to run to an appointment in a second, but let me ask you finally, I know one of the other areas you're really involved in is, is oversight, which is one of the uh, aspects of, of legislating that is oftentimes not understood or appreciated. Tell us a little bit about the importance of investigations and even one that you, you were involved in, in which, as I understand it, you, you were able to undercover that the GSA uh, you know, was, was selling you know, cars from its fleet and was selling cars that had been recalled so talk about more broadly about just the importance of of investigation and oversight
1: my goodness uh yeah the things that i've learned uh, during our oversight investigations are uh perplexing baffling um but uh it's good that we've found out about them so that we can fix them um with regard to the gsa uh what, what what's happened is that it, it turns out that the GSA um, sells cars from the fleet that it no longer wants. But many of these vehicles that it, had, it is selling or has sold were actually subject to recall for major defects or flaws um, that in some cases were life-threatening if the, if the car were to, for instance, you know, catch on fire or the brakes weren't able to work. Uh, or what have you. And we found this, and I, I proposed legislation with my Republican counterpart, uh, Guy Renschenthaler from uh, Pennsylvania, to essentially prevent the GSA from selling those types of cars and to fix all the cars that are in the current GSA fleet that are subject to recall. This is one of those things, John, that is like the biggest no-brainer ever because it doesn't cost the taxpayers Even one dime because it's the obligation of the uh, um, auto dealers as well as the automobile companies to fix those cars. And so it's really just a matter of diligence and getting our act together because a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of employees uh, are actually driving these cars uh, with defects around the country, even in Illinois. Uh, And uh, they're a threat, obviously, uh, to other drivers. And of course, they themselves are in grave danger. So we just got to stop stuff like that. What I find overall with my oversight work, especially of the government, is that, yes, there are a lot of cases where people have intentionally done things uh, that are wrong and we have to uh, hold them accountable and prevent prevent them from happening, happening again. But there are also a lot of cases where there's just like bureaucratic inertia that Seems to uh, set in and prevent change, and uh, and so you're just kind of scratching your head when you look at a case like the GSA situation and being like, guys, what you know, what are you doing? Let's just fix this and move on. Um, but uh, unfortunately, in Washington D.C., it's it's easier said than than done. Congressman, I think we have a, a time for a
0: couple questions yes. that have been emailed, yeah. and uh, one comes from William from Chicago who asked about the fine line between stockpiling Ukraine, you know, giving weapons to th- that country, and, and, and kind of p- going over a, a tripwire trip that would invite a, Repub- a, a Russian response that might lead to a, a major escalation. So, you know, how do we, you know, increase the supplies to the Ukrainians without, you know, triggering unexpected consequences?
1: That's a great question. I think that um, to me, the red line is the deployment of US troops uh, or US assets or NATO assets in Ukraine. But I personally think that we should be able to supply them with an unlimited number of armaments to be able to defend themselves, whether they are everything from pistols and rifles and grenade launchers to uh, uh, surface to air missile systems and other items that are necessary for their defense. And I think that we should not allow Vladimir Putin to decide what is acceptable and what's not acceptable because quite frankly, he would, he would say some of the things that we even say, uh, might amount to declarations of war. But that doesn't mean we should stop saying them or doing certain things. Um, And so. uh, we need to be uh, robust in our help of the Ukrainian people because at stake is freedom and democracy and the international order.
0: Uh, Charles from Hoffman Estates asked about the, the issue of reparations for Ukraine and said, asked, how can we transform Russian frozen assets into uh, reparations for Ukraine? I mean, that's obviously a conne- very complex financial issue. But do you have a general thought on that? Um. So as you know, uh,
1: uh, there's a history of potentially using frozen assets to uh, uh, pay for certain wrongs. Uh, Even in the context of Afghan frozen assets, the 9-11 victims uh, are likely to get some portion of those frozen assets uh, while the other portion goes back to Afghanistan for humanitarian relief. I think that there should be a process for that. I don't think that Um, we should necessarily um, uh, be able to seize them without some kind of findings and some process, because at the end of the day, that could happen to anyone. Um, And we just need to make sure that uh, it's done in accordance with our laws and our process, and of course, any applicable international laws. At stake is the enforcement of international laws, rules, and norms. And so, if we really believe in that, I, th- I personally think we should observe them, uh, even at the same time that we um, uh, repel the active Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: Okay. Jim from Barrington asked a very different question about the DeJoy Act, which I have to say <laughs> I looked up and realized it pertains to the restructuring of the US Postal Service. Tell us yeah. about that. And he wants to know what your, your view is on that.
1: So, uh, Let me just say, first of all, that there's big news with the Postal Service Uh, uh, on a bipartisan basis. uh, The Senate and the House just passed last night uh, major legislation to put the Postal Service back on proper fiscal footing, and and the president's likely to sign into law. There's a separate issue apart from that, which is what types of service standards should the USPS maintain? Louis DeJoy came into office, and those service standards dropped dramatically. Um, even at the same time, even at the same time that he increased prices, and he deliberately changed the service standards, um, such as uh, enlarging the time for first-class mail to arrive at its destination, and so forth. I have asked for him uh, to be relieved of his duties. Uh, the Board of Governors can only do that. The USPS Board of Governors. I believe at some point he will be because he has been a disaster for the USPS. I still, this is the number one source of complaints for my 720,000 constituents. We have businesses, we have individuals uh, not getting their payments, not getting their prescription medicines. Some people don't get mail for weeks at a time, John. Um, This is just an absolute nightmare. And so we should take them out of there and put someone in there who is apolitical. All they do is they worry about the USPS and that's it.
0: Congressman, final question. I I, uh, when I was a reporter, I used to look in when I interview lawmakers, I I like to look at the caucuses that they were members of to just get a sense of the range of their interests. And I as I looked at your bio, I see that you're part of the Asian Pacific American Caucus, the middle class jobs caucus, the manufacturing municipal bond arts community college. Candy, want to learn more about that small, <laughs> small brewers in Sri Lanka and many others. But give us a sense of just as you as you approach your job, what are what are the things you want to do? What do you want um, your service to represent? Well,
1: I, I know that the Candy Caucus is very uh, popular with my three children. Um, you know, I, it's interesting that the, the the breadth of the caucuses that I join represents the breadth and diversity of my district, John. And um, I I usually join these caucuses to the extent that my constituents uh, have a desire for me to do so, and there's no um, contrary uh, reason for for not joining. What am I trying to do in Congress? It's very simple. It goes back to what my parents assigned to me in in their mission statement to me for my life, which is try to make sure this country is there for the next families who need it. And uh, I think that's why I was put on this earth to help people to climb the economic ladder, regardless if you're poor or middle-class or your small business, and then to make sure everyone has a chance at the dream, uh, regardless of where you come from or the color of your skin or um, what language you speak at home or how many letters there are in your name. There are 29 in mind, John. And so that is my mission. I think that's why I'm here and uh, that's what motivates me and my staff every day.
0: Let me ask you how you like to relax. I know you're a Cubs fan, which is not always relaxing, <laughs> but- uh, I actually
1: have a, a W uh, right there. <laughs> you can't see it, but go ahead.
0: Well, no, just tell me how you like to relax. I know you have a, a grueling life, you know, from Washington to uh, to to home in the Western suburbs of Chicago, traveling back and forth. You have three children. Tell us about your life when you're not, uh, on official duty
1: my favorite thing is just to be with my kids my wife and kids i'm i'm very much a some people might consider me a pretty boring guy uh when i'm not uh when when i'm not on duty so to speak um you know i just like to hang out with them and um that's really the the, this you know whether it's you know going to a basketball game with my kids or you know when i get home i get uh I'm the dishwasher, I'm the chauffeur, and I'm the guy that, uh, you know, has to go and, you know, pick up such and such person from such and such place at such and such time. That's that's kind of my uh, uh, job functions at home. And I, I
0: enjoy that. That's fine. Great. Well, Congressman, I know you have a really busy day, and you're going to be rushing off to another appointment. I, one thing I would like to say is, when when conditions allow, we would love to have you come to campus and uh, see the institute. Maybe bring your your wife and your children to show them Southern Illinois, and and let us you know see you up close. and And I'd love to meet you personally, and also to get a sense of of what uh, another part of Illinois is thinking and 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 focused on.
1: I would love that, John. And and you've been so kind and. Uh, extending me the opportunity to address uh, some folks uh, affiliated with your institute. I have to say, Paul Simon is one of our all-time heroes. Uh, Sheila Simon is a very close friend of mine, and um, I'm a big, big fan of the Simons and of course the Institute, and uh, thank you for your incredible service as the head of that Institute, and call on me uh, anytime for
0: anything anyone needs. That would be great. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, John. Take care. Thank you for listening to Simon Cass, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.